Hey, the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible by Samaritas, which is the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. But they do a heck of a lot more than that. They've been serving homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They're also one of the largest resettlement agencies in the state. They provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families. And they also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas. Thanks for their support. Great organization doing great stuff all around the state. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Happy Monday. Glad to have you with me. We are back from Mackinac Island, but I live streamed all of the interviews that I did on the island, and I realized that many of you could not catch them when they happened, so I thought I would repackage a number of the more important interviews that I did up there and some of the more interesting people that I talked to. So, coming up on today's program, look for conversations from Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Also, State Senator Marshall Bullock will join us to talk a little bit about auto reform and what happens with the roads, and a conversation with Mark Wallace of the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy, recipients of a very nice gift that they got news of when they are up on Mackinac Island. So we'll talk about all of those things coming up on today's program. Thanks so much. Stick around. Lots to come. Hey, everybody, this is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much. We are broadcasting live from Mackinac Island at the Mackinac Policy Conference hosted by the Detroit Regional Chamber. My guest right now, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Craig. And I'll tell you what, as we were walking over here, I saw somebody give you a hug and said, oh, my God, the best attorney general we've ever had. It's only been a few months, uh, but this reaction, this changeover in the office that we have seen, I mean, what a difference an election makes, obviously. But have you been getting a lot of that? Well, you know, it's just that I have a very different philosophy than the two Republicans who preceded me in that office. Uh, and I, I think for a lot of people it is a refreshing change, you know. My perspective on the role of the Michigan Attorney General is to be as proactive as possible in terms of protecting residents all around the state. So whether I'm filing suit against pharmaceutical companies trying to bring down the price of uh, generic medication, whether I'm going after folks that uh, abuse or neglect or economically exploit uh, seniors in our state, or whether I'm just trying to protect the environment, those are things that we just didn't see for a very long time. And uh, I think we People are excited to, to see some new, fresh blood uh, and a new perspective on that office. You know, you, you've also, though, taken on some issues that have been politically difficult in Michigan. Uh, the Enbridge Line 5 issue, for one. You've taken a very proactive stance on that. You've been very aggressive when it comes to your interpretation of the law as what happened in lame duck last time around in terms of ballot signatures and things like this. The Attorney General does have the ability to make some sort of rulings, uh, do people understand what it actually does, though, in terms of the force of law and things along those lines? Right. Yeah, I mean, the office comes with great uh, power and, and great authority. There's no question about that. Um, it's one of the things that made it very appealing to me because I didn't see a lot of movement in the legislature in regard to things that I thought were important. Um, but there was a lot that I thought could be done through the Office uh, of Michigan Attorney General to really improve and enhance the lives of people all around their state. And I'm trying as hard uh, as I possibly can to make sure that that happens. You know, uh, high-profile stuff that you've done already, too. Uh, the clergy abuse lawsuit that was brought the other day, uh, charges there. I think a lot of people were like, 
a little bit, little bit shocked by this. Nobody really wants to confront this, but talk about confronting it head on in this way and say, you know what, we are going to charge these people. This is not something we're going to allow to be swept under the rug or people to be reassigned as we've seen in so many other instances. Well, you know, as you know, this investigation actually started under my Republican predecessor, mm-hmm. Bill Schuette, and last October uh, in 2018, they executed seven different search warrants and dioceses all around the state and confiscated hundreds of thousands of documents in regard to that. So I'm merely continuing the investigation that was already started. Sure. But, you know, when we dived into it and, uh, you know, when we started to look at what was really there, Uh, and establish this tip line that people could call in on, I mean, the magnitude, the scope of the problem um, was, frankly, um, horrifying to me. And what we discovered is what I believe to be hundreds and hundreds of victims, could go into the thousands, actually. Now, a lot of those cases we can't prosecute, unfortunately, either because the statute of limitations has run or, in some cases, the the priests uh, are simply deceased at this point. But, you know... um, we're talking about an institution that permitted uh, child abuse and, and sexual assault to proliferate. And, you know, what I think the victims need more than anything is to know that these predators are just not going to get away with what they did to them. Uh, in so many cases, ruining the lives of these people forever. Um, and that they're going to be held accountable. And that's the kind of justice that I think victims need. But more so than that, if there are dangerous uh, pederasts that are on the streets, we need to take them off the streets. We need to protect future victims, make sure that future victims um, are not made because we're holding these folks accountable. Does this, in, in a way, though, I mean, if you look at in the wake of the Michigan State situation as well, uh, you know, with Dr. Nasser and, and the way that the institution handled that, and you go back to Penn State, is there a message that is being sent with the prosecution like this one to all organizations that, look, come clean? own up to your mistakes, figure this stuff out, or else you're going to be in similar situations. Well, that's really exactly the message that I hope to send to them. And what we've seen in document after document is when the hierarchy in some of these dioceses would learn of the types of allegations that were being made, the go-to move was never, we better contact the authorities. It was always, well, what are we going to do about this? And, you know, how do we make certain that this doesn't come to light? How do we convince the victim not to speak up and move forward on this? Um, and where where do we put this uh, wayward clergy member uh, so that they're moved to another location? And what do we have to do to buy off this victim? And the message that I want to send is, whether it's Michigan State, uh, whether it's any of these dioceses, that that is not going to be uh, enough. It's not going to be appropriate. And if you are in any way complicit, if you are an aider and a better in a sexual assault, you too will be held accountable. Attorney General Dana Nessel, my guest right now. Uh, yesterday, you talked about. You said, "Hey, I ran on shutting down Line Five. Uh, protesters obviously were greeting us as we pulled into the docks uh, yesterday. A lot of people up in this part of the state very, very concerned about the potential impact of if something happens to Line 5. What's the option here? What, what, what do you think can happen in, in regards to Line 5 and, and how it should proceed? Well, I think we need to keep repeating the point over and over again that a very small amount of uh, the fuel that comes through Line 5 ever goes to services 
to, to service the residents of our state. And the estimates are that it's only between 5 and 10% uh, of anything that comes through that line actually goes to Michigan residents. The vast majority of it, go, it's, it's a Canadian oil company that services Canadian citizens. Um, and we are merely a conduit uh, where you know, that pipeline passes through. But unfortunately, we here in Michigan have to absorb all the risk. So we're looking at what could very potentially be the biggest oil spill in American history mm -hmm. in the event that both pipelines rupture via an anchor strike or something of that nature. And we know that there have been multiple anchor strikes over the years. Sure. Um, and, you know, it's time to shut it down. There are so many different ways that we can make certain that, you know, people in the UP get the propane they need and that we replace any of the fuel that has gone to our state residents. And it's, need, it's time for our state legislature to get moving on that. And let's find alternative methods. But to, you know, put the Great Lakes at such risk and to have a situation where potentially our state never, ever will recover from the magnitude of the economic damage, the damage to our natural resources, the, the uh, poisoning of our drinking water. Uh, I'm not okay with that. And I'm ready to move forward. Now, one of the options that was being peddled, obviously, in the, before you, you were elected, was this notion of a tunnel underneath, and, and basically create a tunnel to put the lines under there, so they're not just sitting on the on the, the lake bed. Uh, you argued, though, that the authority that they created to make this happen was unconstitutional. Um, do you still agree with that? I mean, is this authority? Do they don't have the power basically to do this infrastructure project in your mind? It's not that they don't have the power to do it per se. That particular piece of legislation, the Mackinac Corridor Authority legislation, was, as you know, rushed through. It was amended multiple times at the last minute. I'm not really even certain that the people who voted on it had an opportunity to read it all the way through. And it was defective from a constitutional perspective uh, in a variety of ways. Um, I stand by that opinion. I have every confidence that that opinion is going to be upheld in a court of law if and when it's challenged. Uh, but whether or not a, a tunnel is a good idea, I might not personally believe it's a good idea, yeah. but I'm not a policymaker, and it's up to the legislature and it's up to the governor to make that decision. But here's what it is incumbent upon me to do. I have to defend the Michigan Constitution. The Michigan Constitution calls for the protection of the Great Lakes and our natural resources and even more specifically our drinking water. Um, and the, as far as I'm concerned, Enbridge is violating the law. And it is my job, it's my obligation, it's my responsibility to enforce the law, and I plan to do it. Well, we're sort of bouncing around topics a little bit, because I only have you for a few more minutes. But I, I do want to ask about this. You joined uh, 22 other states, uh, a coalition of 22 states, in suing the Trump administration over some of the religious exemptions uh, that they're trying to put in the law. Talk a little bit about the problem you had with that, and is, is the changes that he's making, is it incompatible with, in your mind, the U.S. Constitution or also Michigan's? Both, yeah. as a matter of fact. Uh, the fact is, this is the most flagrant violation of church and state that I have ever, ever seen. You know, the, the First Amendment was always intended to act as a shield to protect people from being discriminated against. But instead, the Trump administration has decided to use it as a sword to skewer the rights of others. So basically, what this new rule promulgated by the Department of Health and Human Services would do is it would allow all medical personnel, and not just people who actually are doctors or nurses or pharmacists, but I mean even if you work at a doctor's office, you could be a receptionist at a doctor's office, and if you have any kind of religious um, belief that in you think any way, shape, or form conflicts with either a particular service that a uh, doctor's office or a hospital would provide, 
a particular person that you don't want to provide that service to, you can simply refuse to do it. And I'm talking about, it means prescribing birth control, prescribing HIV medication, or even if a woman is suffering from an ectopic pregnancy and she's literally bleeding to death, um, you can have staff at a hospital say, I'm going to refuse to perform a life-saving measure. And even though there's no way that that pregnancy is viable, if it's an ectopic pregnancy, you have to die if you have people who work at that hospital that just say, uh, I don't feel comfortable uh, performing a procedure to save your life on your ectopic pregnancy. I mean, it's horrific uh, to think that even uh, a receptionist at a doctor's office could literally say, hey, what are you coming in for? Well, I'd like to get a refill on my birth control prescription. And that receptionist can say, well, then I'm not going to make an appointment for you. And not only are there no repercussions to them, but the Department of Health and Human Services is talking about cutting off funding to our state unless we expressly permit uh, you know, medical personnel to behave in this fashion. I mean, it's it's taking us back to the handmaid's tale. It's crazy. Well, so much of this debate, though, has been framed around the issue of whether or not somebody has to bake a cake for a gay wedding as opposed to this. When you start putting it in these sort of terms and people start thinking about potentially life-altering choices that somebody could make in terms of their religious freedom, where is the debate right now? And, I mean, are we getting it right? Are we talking about the right things? In terms of getting people to understand what, what is actually being done here. Well, I'm trying to talk about yeah. the right things, and I'm trying to make it crystal clear to people. And I want people to understand it's as simple as, you know, somebody filling out a form in a doctor's office that indicates with their marital status that they're divorced. And the ability of the doctor to say, well, I don't believe in divorce. That violates my religious principles. I'm not going to treat you. I mean, think about how scary that is for anybody to be able to do that, to know that they can't be fired for that, and to know that actually, if they are fired, that our state can lose funding. I mean, it's terrifying. And I'm going to do everything in my power as Michigan Attorney General to fight as vigorously as I can against these kinds of rules uh, and to ensure that our uh, our nation does not, you know, devolve into a virtual theocracy. Well, we'll have to leave it right there for now. We will talk again. Attorney General Dana Nessel, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for it. having me. This is the Craig Fonley Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you for bringing that up. Not, sure. Almost nobody talks about it. It's crazy. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hey, this is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks for being with us as we broadcast live at the Mackinac Policy Conference. My guest right now, State Senator Marshall Bullock from the city of Detroit. Somebody... Full disclosure, I worked very closely with when I was at the Detroit Land Bank Authority. You were in the Department of Neighborhoods in the city at the time uh, trying to trying to fix problems. That's what we do. We're problem solvers. Well, you just went from, you know, one difficult job in the city dealing with the Department of Neighborhoods, which is not easy at all. Uh, you know, you're handling citizen concerns, citizen issues, to now being their elected representative in Lansing. Different set of concerns, perhaps, but still the, the demand for results has got to be the same. It's probably higher. And then the difficulty is, is it policy? Is it actually something that's written in law, or is it just a policy issue of that department? And so determining which is which becomes cumbersome, and then you figure that out. So if it, if you need to change the law, then you have to go to bat 
figure out how you can do that, uh, who's opposing it, where the compromise comes from, and then that's how you work towards it. Well, you know, the, the learning curve, you didn't have a lot of time. I mean, the, look, the, the auto insurance bill is something that just got hatched this time around. This is something you ran on, was, was uh, getting this done, uh, you know, the, the whole Thanks Lansing campaign, all that kind of stuff, those billboards you were talking about. Hey, we're going to do something about auto insurance in Detroit. That came up really, really quick. Well, I think we had a, it, the seeds had been planted. I mean, it's 45 years later, but people have been fighting this for a long time. Martha G. Scott stood up every day and demanded some type of justice on auto insurance. Um, Virgil Smith would lay down the law. He, he knew the details and the statutes and which parts were just bizarre. You know, yeah. was it, it's, it's competitive as long as it's, it's, it's not excessive, as long as it's competitive. But if all the companies are excessive and they're competing with one another, it still fell in the line of the definition of being competitive. And DIFFS wasn't allowed to say that it's excessive and unnecessary. And so all of those little things made it hard. Uh, well, you know, I, I started covering the legislature back in 1994, and they were talking about this then. Well, yeah, I've trying been, to get something done. It has not been able to get done until now. What changed? What what dynamic change that made it possible this time? Well, I was going back to where we were at when we, you know, I'm not new to the issue. So in 2014, we launched a campaign when Mayor Duggan the ran. De-insurance. De-insurance. And de-insurance was strictly for Detroit. But it was a chance for the mayor and the team to advocate why this was ridiculous and Detroit needed some relief. And then I think bipartisanly people started to feel the pain of insurance from where they were from and look at all of the merits that we were making in our campaign about it and then driver's choice came about and that was a bipartisan pact between the democrats and republicans and the mayor's office and other folks and it lost by a small margin but that's that set the stage it a change was coming and i probably just came in at the right time but i understood the details as well as some other people. It's a complex issue. I mean, you can't. Everybody has their viewpoint about it. But most people don't understand it. Uh, everybody's grumbling about some part of it, right? Yes. You know, depending. On, so that tells me typically that it's a decent bill. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. You yes. Know, so it, this- if, if everybody's getting hit a little bit. Uh, but, you know, there are, there are some legitimate concerns people have about, you know, whether or not this is going to inflate the cost of Medicaid. Uh, in particular, it won't. People are people who had car accidents with no insurance were already getting Medicaid. Yeah, yeah. So we were paying for people who were uninsured. At least this way, if you're on Medicaid and you get the fifty thousand dollar policy, it's something affordable. And we'll be watching it. I mean, but we hadn't done anything in forty five years. It's easy to fight or argue for something you know is going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> so we are solution oriented. I don't want it to lose. I want to. I want to find a win. How do we start taking a bite out of this apple? What, what for the first time we got something actionable, something that that's bicameral, bipartisan. Whether we, the process was perfect to get to this imperfect. You, you guys are a minority in, in both houses, um, especially in the Senate. Still, a pretty significant minority because yeah. of the, because of the way those districts were drawn. Let's be honest. Um, that's another story we talk about a different yes, day. Yes, that was another day. Uh, but how were you able to extract the things that you wanted in that negotiation? Because a lot of people thought the Senate was going to be the tough part, that they were going to stick to their guns and just get the industry stuff that they wanted to see through and not necessarily the consumer protections that you guys wanted. Well, I think that uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky and Democratic Leader uh, Ananik understood that it had to get done. 
And so the same thing on the House side. And I think once the Senate brought forth the bill, it was more of a shell. And then it went over to the House and they added a lot of meat and potatoes and threw in some mushrooms and peanuts. And then when it came back, I think when the governor said, I'm going to veto that, people are allergic to mushrooms and peanuts. (laughs) But, you know, the meat and potatoes portion might be okay. Let's figure this out. That the, the quad leaders, along with the input from their caucuses, got things in. So there were folks adamant about these non-driving factors, adamant about the fee schedules, and adamant about the insurance companies rolling back, freezing, and guaranteeing <coughs> rate relief, and then giving more power to diffs. And so once that basically got done, I mean, like I was telling somebody earlier, if I had to grade this, it's, it's a B minus. Some people might make it a C plus, but it's all around. Status and quo is an F. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah, we we had what we had was terrible. Well, it was inhumane. You know, I, I do want to address one thing that people are concerned about this. And like I said, I know this is an issue that was near and dear to you, and and part of the reason that you ran. Um, but there there are concerns that there's somehow going to be a continuation of, of redlining of Detroiters in particular because of this territorial argument that they're making that you can use <clears throat> census tracts as opposed to zip codes means that they still can target specific areas for potentially higher rates. Yeah, but diffs will have more powers and it has to be rational and reasonable in order to ask and they can't just raise rates anymore there is a file and approval component instead of a file and use component that used to be they used to just tell diffs they were raising the rates and every state uses territorial rates they have to use uh, well, some to, type of mechanism exactly there's got to be an to, algorithm to figure the algorithm this out figure it out so i mean the it, the diff should be able to direct them in how to make the the territorial is it by county is it by region and will it be all of southeast michigan versus the i hope to have some input in that moving forward i mean it doesn't start getting implemented until next year 2020 and then in 2021 the fee schedules will all take effect so we got two years to kind of watch how the policy is going to from the industries how they're going to manage themselves and write their new format and how we can input have some input in that well you know again the governor signed the legislation this morning yes. so this is actually going to happen well it's going to happen uh, just now, now now the next the next project is fixing the damn roads fix uh, the roads and the budget in well, the budget well you got a lot of people looked at the auto insurance roads sort of trade look you're going to pay more here but we're going to save you some money on the other side with the insurance and that's going to be some relief that people get are you looking at it as that kind of a trade-off i don't i i think they're separate but congruently joined somehow but i don't i don't think that it was an, uh, a a barter no i think the insurance was on its own merit now the roads that's tough budget fight. to approve the budget might have some more that might be something but i think she's bottom lined at that 45 cents uh, we'll see what the compromise is it can't be too harsh because for the first time in history again something else that everybody Republican, Democrat, nonpartisan has agreed to fix the roads in Michigan is a 2.5 or better or 2 billion better yeah. for the next several years to fix the roads in Michigan because we are light years behind. Well, I've lived in four of the states. We are light years behind on road maintenance and infrastructure maintenance. And so we have to have something done. So again, something has to be done. What's the solution? We might vary on it, but but 
the people want it done. So then you well, have to work on that. What are you getting hammered about up here? I mean, everybody wants to talk to their elected representatives, uh, business leaders, obviously, and lobbyists have things that they want to talk about. What are you, what are you getting hammered about up here? Uh, up until... I don't mean in a bad way. No, no, no. I, just, I get uh, what's, the, what's the call. Yeah, the calls what's, were about insurance, insurance, the roads, insurance, education, insurance, insurance. So we've got... Well, just a education big, of roads is all I got left. We got, I mean, come on now. We got a big monkey <laughs> off our back. I mean, no, I have. True. I have. Well, and so so far in the five months, I've been a. I'm I'm part of the package of bills that's a bipartisan package on raise the age from seventeen sure. to eighteen. So I worked juvenile justice for thirty years. I understand the 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 significance of a seventeen year old going into prison versus going into the juvenile system. So now that we're charging adults as adults, I mean, it still does. It still gives the the court and the leeway to still charge someone who's done an adult crime to be charged as an adult, but it's not automatic anymore. Sure. So how does that work out? How do you roll them back to the juvenile system? Will the county's juvenile system get their funding back from the correction system, or how do how does that work out? I think we're still figuring that piece out. Um, I'm a part of, I have my own bill, which is a a bipartisan bill with uh, Senator Outman to get vapes out the hands of minors. So we did that. That's sitting on the governor's desk also. So uh, that's a big deal. You know, there was little opposition about it. They want to move. Some folks want it to be 21 and over. They want it to be taxed as tobacco, but it's not a tobacco product. It doesn't use tobacco. And kids are out here using it at a heavy rate. And so we wanted to stop that. So now it's going to be roads. Um, I'm on family, seniors, and veterans. I really want to do a lot of stuff with mental health. So I've met with Willie Brooks, or I'm actually having a meeting with Willie Brooks to see how we can help coordinate something and get something in legislation to be more beneficial to the 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 urban communities but mental health is real and it's everywhere well and there's and there's going to be a bit of a fight over over those funds uh and and administration of those funds i have a feeling as well but like that's an issue for another day we will get to it but uh marshall bullock state senator marshall bullock thank you Uh, congratulations on on getting the the road stuff done or not the roads excuse me that's next uh the insurance stuff done i I wasn't positive we'd uh, be able to get there and and we did that's a big bite out the elephant and it happened i mean like i'm just shocked we did it in less than five months that we've gotten things done well and and thank you for doing it because it gave me something else to talk about up here oh beautiful beautiful (laughs) thank you for having me we'll talk soon this is the craig folly show on deadline detroit thank you Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with us as we broadcast live from the Mackinac Policy Conference, the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Policy Conference. And every year up here, some announcement gets made that's a big deal for the city of Detroit, for the state of Michigan. Well, if you've been following along at all with what's been going on with the riverfront, you know that that is a huge part of, of Detroit's rebirth. Access to the waterfront, the rebuilding of, of parkland and public space along there. And my friend Mark Wallace from the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy has been one of the people that 
that's been very responsible for this. Big news today, $5 million bucks. Uh, it's huge news. From, f- from Delta Dental. A $5 million gift from Delta Dental in Michigan, and we are so thrilled by it. It's, it's the largest corporate gift that they've ever given in their 60-year history. It's remarkable. Very what, excited about it. And this is part of the, a much bigger development at West Riverfront Park, which is a hugely ambitious project that you guys are taking on over there right now. Uh, this is going to be for, for the playground that you envision, correct? That's right. So West Riverfront Park, which folks know from Mopop and some of the other festivals, is going to be transformed into Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park in honor of Ralph Wilson, the foundation who recently made a $50 million commitment. And you're right, it's ambitious, and it's ambitious uh, for two reasons. One is because the Wilson Foundation encouraged us to dream big, and second, because it's a 22-acre waterfront site. Most, most cities would kill to have a property like this where they could transform it, deliver it back to the community. In a typical urban context, this would be full of condos. You know, it would be isolated. You know, you'd have to be a millionaire to live there. But we're turning that on its head in Detroit. This is going to be a place where kids and families are welcome. They're brought into the community. Uh, and thanks to Delta Dental, this playground is going to be a place where you can get healthy. Uh, we can connect kids to services, uh, dental services and others. Really excited about it. Well, you know, and, and $5 million, again, nothing to sneeze at. This goes a long way towards helping oh, yeah. you complete that vision. Uh, and. So talk about Delta and getting them on board. You know, they obviously are trying to really encourage better health. I mean, that's been a big part of their mission. How did this fit in for them? Well, it's amazing. Delta Dental is, a, is an amazing corporation in, in Michigan, and, and they've done incredible work. I mean, they have a very broad footprint, and they're really focused on service in the community. So, yeah, it's funny. They always talk about brushing your teeth and flossing, so I'd be remiss to not give them a plug for that. Uh, but they also understand that Healthy communities means much more than just uh, access to medical, access to insurance. Uh, that having been said, there are a lot of kids in Detroit, a lot of families in Detroit, who are supported by the Delta Dental platform. Uh, and a lot of them just need an opportunity to connect with that research, with that resource, uh, with that knowledge, or with that service. So really excited. Uh, and it goes back to some of the early amazing commitments from folks like General Motors and others who came in uh, on day one and said we want to be supportive of this vision because this space should be the best part of our city. Well, you know, Mark Wallace, my guest right now, again, uh, he is uh, with the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy and uh, again, announce, announcement today that Delta Dental is giving $5 million for the further development of Ralph C. Wilson Memorial Park, which is formerly West Riverfront Park in Detroit. Um, you know, we've had a lot of discussions lately about artist renderings of projects and whether or not those projects <laughs> live up to what the, the people had envisioned. You guys have been very consistent about putting together reasonable, realistic plans and giving people a real vision for what this is going to be, but following through. Yeah. How critical is it that you keep meeting these benchmarks of progress to show people that their their investment is secure and that this project is working? It's absolutely essential. And, and, and it goes back, Craig, to, to integrity. Um, you look at Matt Cullen, you look at Faye Alexander Nelson, you look at David Page, you look at some of my heroes, the people who started this organization. I mean, without Faye having worked on this thing and delivered on promise after promise for 10, 12 years she was there at the organization, I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, the Wilson Foundation trusts us. They're excited about this project because we deliver on our promises. And the community trusts us, and they get excited about this because we deliver on our promises. And that goes right up to Matt. Uh, there's nobody like Matt Cullen in our board chair. It's just really a very special, amazing person. Um, but you know, our CFO, Willis Smith, and others, Cassie Brensky, our development officer, you know, these are people who care. They, they wake up every single day passionate about this work. They follow through on what they say they're going to do. And in Detroit, unfortunately, yeah, not only do we have a lot of people promising things that weren't delivered, we also had a lot of people uh, who were taking away things that previously belonged to our community. 
So for us to be able to give back to the community, to, to pour back into the families, is really a special opportunity. You know, when you look at the overall redevelopment of the city and the plans that are going there, so much of it is focused around public space, green space, better utilization, recreational opportunities. What role do you think the Riverfront Conservancy and, and the and frankly, the reclamation of the riverfront has played in terms of our overall redevelopment strategy in Detroit? I, public space is hot right now. And, and I think it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And I think part of it is... You know, people don't want to be isolated. Yeah, if you think about Detroit you know, 20, 25 years ago, a lot of people were scared of the community. You know, a lot of people who have been living in Detroit for a long time were putting bars in the windows. You know, they, were, they were sort of collapsing in on their families and, and sort of focusing in on their own private space. What we're seeing now is that the best parts of Detroit are those places where everyone comes together. So Easter Market, Campus Marcius, the public spaces, Cody Rouge, uh, you know, uh, Clark Park, like those are places where we all come out and we realize that we live in cities because we want to be around people. If you want to be isolated, there's a whole lot of suburbs around Detroit. There's great places you can live. I, I like the woods too. You, know, you want to be on a farm, you want to be out in nature. There are great places to do that in Michigan. Uh, but what's special about cities is they bring people together. And the best cities are the ones that bring people from the farthest uh, walks of life together. So, you know, New York, you see people wearing clothes you would never wear. It's exciting. You know, Eastern Market, you see people buying foods you would never buy. It's exciting. And the riverfront is really building on that idea. Well, you know, I guess the question is, at what point does your mission expand beyond just the redevelopment oh, of man. this? Because there's not, there's, there's not an infinite amount of space. Uh, there is still work to be done, obviously. But it's look, you've got to be looked at as a model for how to do this. Well, we, we're... we're we're very excited to help people learn what we've learned. And we've made some mistakes along the way. Uh, so we want to make sure that we can accelerate other organizations in the community. But it's a big vision from the Ambassador Bridge to the Belle Isle Bridge, five and a half miles. Uh, that's a whole well, lot I'm of river I'm still waiting walk. for you to expand all the way to the border <laughs> on the east side, you know. So, but that's, that's it's my grandpa little... would say. That'll be the day. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> but seriously, I mean, uh, you know. Yeah, it's the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy, but the way that you handled it, the way that the development has gone, and, and frankly, you know, keeping it on pace, yeah. keeping it on budget, yeah. which, which matters a whole lot. It does. Uh, you know, there's opportunities to transform a lot of vacant land in this community. No, that's right. And, you know, again, I, I think that there are a lot of opportunities for a lot of people to play. And it's been great for us to see some of the small organizations, too. Uh, you know, the folks over at Clark Park, the folks um, over at Chandler Park, they really have some great leadership working on those projects. And again, I, I think we need a lot of things. We need those big regional draws like Rouge Park and the Riverfront. Uh, we need the small pocket parks. Um, we need each community to have its own little public space. It just it matters a lot to us. Well, you know, I, I do have to give a little plug. Your wife is going to be on a panel uh, in just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, she she's, of course, uh, involved with Quicken Loans development and, and has been working on the foreclosure issue. I know you've got to go see her speak in about five minutes, but I want to give you an opportunity to plug a little bit about what she's doing. And I'm going to try to get her on uh, oh, a little bit later to talk about this. But Look, some of the anti-foreclosure stuff she's been working on. Talk about neighborhood transformation. No, that it, stuff is critically important. It's amazing. Laura Grant, my girlfriend now. Uh, Excuse but, me. I, no, 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 it's, I, it's all good. I, I screw uh, But up. she's doing amazing work. And, you know, she has a personal interest in housing foreclosure and tax foreclosure. And what she's seen is that most of the people who are losing their homes in Detroit aren't losing them because they can't pay their mortgage. They're losing them because it, they can't pay their taxes. It's obscene. Um, so about 60,000 households uh, every year are at risk of this. And last year, um, working with a lot of different folks, some of your friends, uh, Ted, Michelle, and others, uh, UCHC, she has reached out literally to 60,000 homes, taken 20,000 of those houses that were at risk of foreclosure, diverted them out of the foreclosure process. And then in the move that I think is most brilliant, uh, there were a lot of folks who are 
uh, tenants in houses and the landlords weren't paying their rent, weren't paying their it's taxes. a huge problem. Yeah. So she said, you know, why should a, a landlord who's not paying his taxes be able to keep this house? Let's give that house to the tenant. So 600 people in Detroit who used to be uh, tenants are now property owners in the city because of this program and because of the partnership the Quicken Loans Community Fund has led. So Laura Granham, a big shout out. She's doing amazing work. Yeah, I, and, and uh, yeah, forgive me for that. I've known Laura for a long time. <laughs> Worked with her on some projects, as a matter of fact, uh, when I was at the Land Bank. So I was excited to see that she was on the agenda up here and doing this work. But uh, anyway, Mark... Uh, Continued success, Thank sir. Uh, Wallace Guitars, by the way. Things still going? <laughs> yeah, Wallace Guitars is still going. we got some great wood. We actually found another batch of wood from the David Whitney building, so that's nice. our next uh, next pile. Well, very nice. And if you haven't checked these out, they are phenomenal. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful guitars made out of reclaimed wood right here in Detroit, which is a big deal. So, sure. uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Renaissance Thanks, man, Greg. apparently. I uh, appreciate it. All right, Mark, we appreciate it very much. Thanks. Mark Wallace, again, with the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy. Again, a huge announcement today, $5 million from Delta Dental to help with the construction at Ralph C. Wilson Centennial Park. It's a huge deal, the biggest donation they've ever gotten. And uh, if you haven't been down to the Riverfront to check out the Riverwalk and everything that's been happening there, you owe it to yourself. Real quick, timeline on completion of the park. It's going to be a work in progress, yeah. but, but when might we see? Uh, we'll be under construction next year, yep. and it will be open in 2022. Beautiful. Looking yeah. forward to it. Thank Great. you, sir. Thanks. All right. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Hey there, my name is Seth Ressler. Hi everyone, it's Becky Scarcello. I am new to the Detroit area. And I've been here my whole life. So we started a podcast together. It's called The D Brief. Detroit's arts and entertainment podcast. We cover concerts, comedy, plays, food, drink, all kinds of stuff. All the cool events around town, things to do, and the people that are doing them. Can we talk about some of the people we've had as guests on this podcast? Hey, this is Mark Curlyanchik, the restaurant critic for the Detroit Free Press. Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi, and I host Essential Music on 1019 WDET. Hi, this is Mark Ridley of Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Hey, this is Kate Williams, executive chef of Lady of the House. Hey, this is Mel Town from WRAF in Detroit. This is Josh Mallerman, author of Bird Box. This is Carmen Harlan, curator of film at the Detroit Institute of Art. President and founder of Valentine Distilling Company. The general manager of innovation experiences for the Henry Ford. Arts and entertainment editor at the Detroit Free Press. Michigan Science Center. Arts Beats and If you like going out in the city of Detroit, you're going to like this podcast. The Debrief Podcast. We like to say Detroit's moving. Keep up. The Debrief. Your guide to Detroit's art and entertainment scene.